All right, welcome to this month's Batting 1000. Uh, I am so excited to have you guys with us this month, and I've got an absolutely incredible guest, a good friend, uh, a man that I have admired for a lot of years. I've, I've watched him uh, on the stage so many times over the last 15 years, uh, speaking to the mortgage industry, um, probably longer than 15 years, actually. Uh, Doug Duncan is with us today. If you don't know who Doug is, uh, I'm sure you do because he needs no introduction, but let me just give you a rundown on Doug's credentials. By the way, Doug, I could spend this entire time just talking about your credentials, but I'm going to give them the one that the ones that I've, I've written down that I want to know. Uh, Doug is a senior vice president and chief economist for Fannie Mae. Uh, he was previously with the MBA before that. He's responsible for the forecast analysis of the economy and the housing and mortgage markets. There is nobody that knows this industry better than Doug does. Uh, he oversees in his position strategic research regarding potential impact of external factors on the housing industry. And just a couple of cool things. Uh, Doug is a Bloomberg Business Week, 50 most powerful people in real estate. That's a huge accolade. He's also in the news as 100 most influential people in real estate. And underneath his leadership, uh, Fannie Mae's Economic and Strat Strategic Research Group earned the 2022 Lawrence R. Klein Award for Blue Chip Forecast Accuracy. Uh, they also won the NABE Outlook Award. Uh, that's You guys are the first recipient of that um, that did it back-to-back -back years, which is a really cool thing. That's mm -hmm. the first time in history. And he is a trustee of North Dakota State University, PhD in Agriculture Economics from Texas a which means I need to call you Dr. Duncan. <laughs> and he has a BS and MS in Agricultural Economics from North Dakota State. So, Doug, Great to have you. So honored to have you here. Great to be with you. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. And um, just to be clear, all those awards are because I have a great staff. I, I'm, I'm, I try not to screw it up. <laughs> I love it. Well, look, we, we want to talk. Uh, obviously, everybody wants to know what's happening with the marketplace. And you and I chatted a little bit. And I want to talk about, you know, the recent trends and why the rates have not responded the way they normally do in the market and some of the things that have been factors that have driven that and kept rates up a little bit. The forecast for what you see and mortgage and real estate and housing and all that. We'd love to hear that. But you and I were having a little conversation backstage and you'd mentioned something that I really would like to start with. And you were talking about what the, the biggest problem is that chief executives have in the mortgage world. So share with me your thoughts on what we were talking about, because I thought that was a great way to start this conversation. Yeah, sure. I, I, I was um, trying to understand when I was finishing my, uh, my degree, what uh, what's the value that economists can provide in the executive office? And in my first couple of years at MBA, as I was talking to some of the leaders, uh, became clear that really their challenge is uh, to understand trend and momentum. Where mm -hmm. is activity in their business and the, the environment in which their business gets executed? Where is that activity going? Um, yep. And then at what speed? Uh, so you may you may choose to say, well, we don't necessarily agree with the trends today, but you should know what they are uh, and have a good reason for why you are relative to that trend where you are. Uh, and like likewise, um, whether you are at speed with the trend or behind or ahead, those things, it seem to me, are important because it, it, it determines where you're going to allocate your resources. Uh, and there's always risk to manage, uh, and understanding those things will give you some insight into the the risks to the to the objectives that you're trying to pursue. 
Now, if you would share the, I love the analogy that you gave me uh, when we talked earlier about that uh, from back in your your naval days. Talk about that for just a minute, because I thought that was a great analogy. Yeah, I was, uh, so I was one, one thing that my father taught me when I was growing up was just pay attention to everything that you do. You may not be what you always want to do, but you're going to learn something if you're paying attention, no matter where you are. So I was in the Navy. I was an enlisted uh, petty officer. Uh, and from time to time, I would stand watch and keep the log on the bridge. Uh, and as I watched the, the captain give orders in, uh, in directing the ship, it was clear that whether you were in a fog bank or you were in bright, clear skies, you, you were going to keep the ship going no matter what. And if you're in a fog bank, you don't necessarily know what's out there, but you can't just stop the ship. Right. And that's a lot like running a company. And maybe today. There's, there's a lot of uncertainty uh, about where the housing sector uh, is going to go. You can't not go, and you have to make some decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, actually, there was early in my days at Mortgage Bankers, uh, Leo Knight, who many of you probably knew, uh, yep. called me, and he asked me, he said, Doug, I've got a board meeting at 5 o'clock. He said, I have to make a decision on this issue. I understand you're a new economist at MBA. Maybe you could help me with this. And so he told me, I don't even remember what the issue is. He said, just call me back at three o'clock and tell me what you think. So I looked at a bunch of things. I called him at three and I said, well, if I look at this, it says uh, this might be a good idea, but the data is kind of iffy. And I look at it with a different set, uh, gives a little bit different indication and the data is not perfect there either. And he stopped and he said, Doug, the data won't be better by five o'clock. He said, I'm just asking your opinion based on your professional expertise, what, how would you make this decision? That was a really important lesson. I've always been grateful for him doing that for me because it, it, it brings it clear. You, you have to make a decision, even though the data aren't better when you have to make that yep. decision. That's really, that's, that's rich information. Well, speaking of the fog bank, I, I think a lot, a lot <laughs> of lenders today feel like they've been in that fog for about a year, you know, year and a half now since about early 2022. And uh, particularly recently, it seems like, you know, rates have just not followed and tracked and responded. And the bond market mm-hmm. hasn't the way it normally does to inflation factors and those kind of things. And I know there's a whole lot of reasons for that between the debt ceiling problem that we had and bank crisis. But I'd love to hear, I mean, nobody knows these things better than you do. I'd love to hear a little bit from you on uh, where we're at today, why we're where we're at today, why rates are, are acting kind of fickle, and where you see things going in the future with rates and with housing and with the, the market. Just kind of give us a, an overview of what you're thinking from an economist standpoint um, with all the data you look at. I'm sure. Um, well, as everybody knows, the Fed met yesterday and decided not to raise the Fed funds target. Yep. But then they muddied the water a little bit by yep. uh, their summary of economic projections suggesting they would, uh, at some point, raise two, 50 basis points. They may do it in two quarter point increments or something, um, which suggests that they think that inflation is not yet under control. Um, and we would agree from a core uh, inflation perspective. Now, typically, when you get as big a rate shock as was in the mortgage industry where rates doubled within a year, uh, right. you would see a lot more slowdown in housing than you saw. There was an initial uh, slowdown, but then the, the reality of 
the pent up demand from the millennials who are still a couple of years away from peak first time home buying age yep. uh, and the, the lack of supply exacerbated by two things. One is the boomers aging in place. And the second one is the Gen Xers who don't get any airtime. So I'm giving them some airtime now. They're the ones that <laughs> locked in 3% mortgages. So that's right. they're not going anywhere. So right. that that's a, a huge chunk of the existing homes out there that are really, in a way, taken off the market. Right. And so it doesn't take a lot of financial power on the demand side for that to, uh, in this instance, stabilize prices, first of all. I think mm -hmm. our view, if you went back six months, was over a two-year time period, we'd probably see a 10% decline in prices. Now we've chopped that probably in half, and we've only seen a couple of percentage points nationally, though regionally there are significant differences. Right. But so, so rates, uh, that rise in rates actually hasn't caused the problem that, uh, that uh, a lot of folks thought. It, of course, chopped off refinances. There's, there's just only a teeny portion of households that it makes sense to refinance. So those numbers have dropped way off. Um, so the market is trying to assess um, how far the Fed is going to have to go in order to get inflation under control. And while headline inflation has come down, um, that is not true about core inflation. It's been very stubborn. Now, part of that's housing. Uh, yep. And in the CPI, that's a pretty good chunk, like a third uh, comes from housing. That, that will flatten out. We'll start to see some reduction in the contribution of housing to uh, inflate underlying or core inflation. But uh, the rest of it is still stubbornly uh, sticky. So um, one of the issues with mortgage rates, they ran over 7% and, and things sort of stopped. Yep. Well, and then what you saw was people offering 2-1 buy-downs and some other issues. That was because nobody believed that when the Fed reversed policy, any MBS backed by 7% mortgages was going to be there for more than a, a very brief time. So prepay risk uh, led to that 2-1 uh, buy-down situation where people could get the, uh, the rates on an MBS back to where they thought it would last for a little while. Yep. The second thing that's going on in spreads, which are historically wide, particularly the secondary spread, is uh, uh, in addition to the prepay issue, if there were going to be a recession, which we have a mild recession in our forecast, that raises risk. So there's a change in the risk premium. So you have to add that in there. I think there's also a search in the market and capital markets for who is going to replace the Fed. So the Fed holds 21% of mortgage-backed securities outstanding. Yep. They're the single biggest holder in the world. Um, the combined depository institutions, banks, uh, and credit unions hold about 29% as a group. But as a single holder, the Fed is the biggest. And they have said, we don't want any of this. We would like it to go away. That's a, that's a formal policy statement that they would like to exit uh, wow. have MBS exit the portfolio. So the yep. question is, who replaces them? So the thrift industry is gone. The depository instant institutions have, over a very long time period, held those in a, in a band which 
They they never exceed a maximum share of the assets held, and they never they're never lower than a, sh a certain share. They're pretty close to the top of that band at the present time. So who steps in and replaces them? And I think there's a significant uncertainty in the market about that, and that widespread is in part a search for who's going to replace that. Interesting. So we're doing some research on that. Uh, people will say different things. They'll say, well, private investors. Okay, uh, maybe so. Uh, at what yield will they be willing to hold that volume? Yep. Uh, and how will they behave over the business cycle? Will they, will they be a more volatile holder, a less volatile holder? You know, the Fed was not an economic buyer. They were a policy buyer. So they weren't buying for risk-return metrics. They were buying to impact the fundamentals in that in that business. Yep. That's not why private investors invest. They're looking at uh, yield and risk-adjusted returns. So th that's a kind of a big unknown. And I think that part of what you see in those spreads is the search for what's going to happen next. And that concern the Fed has about the uh, mortgage-backed securities, is it just because they're concerned about the stability of those uh, funds is really what it comes down to? Well, I don't, I don't think they're worried about um, the value of the MBS or the health of the MBS themselves. In fact, that's one of the things that's different in this current banking uh, issue that we've had that's different from 07 to 09. Yep. You know, 709, it was really an asset quality yeah, question. That's exactly that's right. That's not the case today. Treasuries yep. are solid. The MBS are solid. They just don't want to be intervening in the market uh, by being a buyer in a specific sector. They've taken yeah. some criticism for, for that in the past, and that's why they traditionally hold only treasuries. Uh, so they would like to get back out of that space and, and uh, have the market perform more on fundamentals. So you said a couple of things there that I thought were really key. Um, first off, you, you said just a minute ago that this is not 2007, uh, 2007, 8, 9, and 10. And a lot of people ask that. I hear that all the time from people. Mm -hmm. are, are we going back to 2007, 8, 9, and 10? My answer is always like, no, that's a totally different problem, totally different issue. It was it was more asset-based, credit quality-based, those kinds of things where this yep. is just economic. It's just based on rates and what's happening, which is more cyclical and is going to mm -hmm. change. And I loved when you said earlier, Doug, and I think this is a good reminder for the industry that, you know, we're so quick to say, oh my gosh, rates went up so much. That's so bad. And we forget it actually landed much better than it could have. And it probably mm -hmm. should have. We actually did way better through that process. We're still seeing pretty good production out there. I know for my clients, many of them are doing very, very well. I've got clients who actually are doing better in 2023 than they did in 2022. And that was better than 2021, believe mm -hmm. it or not, when it was a record year. But they understand the market. They, they understand what's happening around them and they're making changes to separate themselves in that market. So I love the fact that you talked about that to remind us we, we should be grateful we're in the industry that we're in and it's responded as well as it has. And this is just another phase we're going through that we've got to deal with. Let, let's talk about housing for a minute. Tell me what you see as the long-term prognosis for housing down the road. Um, I know you just said that you're thinking, you know, at one point it was a 10% drop. Now you're cutting that a half to a 5% drop. 
what do you see in the next, let's just talk the next three years. What do you think real estate's going to do from a value standpoint? What do you think inventory is going to do? That's the biggest concern and heartburn for lenders today. Cause we, we do, we have the biggest demand we've ever seen. We've got population numbers on our side for Gen Y, Gen Z. When you look at that was 168 million people in those two generations, that's a huge population that ultimately will own homes someday. Um, tell us a little bit more about that if you would. Yeah, the, um, uh, from the very big picture, people ask me why I've stayed in the real estate space all, all my career. I can't wait uh, to hear this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a real simple, you, you'll find I'm actually a pretty simple guy. Um, the It is true that every human being on the planet puts their head down every night on a piece of real estate somewhere. That's right. It's part of the human condition. So, right. uh, you know, depending on population, wealth, income, risks, uh, there's a whole bunch of ways that can play out, but it will always be part of the story. And so uh, it, it is to me endlessly interesting from that perspective. Yep. The, the, um, uh, there's a, a variety of things that are going on. You, you, um, uh, mentioned the demographic side, the demand drivers. So coming out of the 07, 09 time period, there was this theory that uh, the millennials had learned from their parents' experience and the foreclosures, and they were going to want to rent 300 square foot apartments with uh, amenities. And so there were all these stories ran. So we started a survey of a thousand households a month in June of 2010. And we continue it to this day. It's been very useful. In that first month survey, June of 2010, 92% of millennials said they eventually want to own a home. Wow. And we're like, so how do you explain the news stories who are not talking to the millennials? And so what the, what the reporters were seeing was that the jobs, which, uh, which the millennials were taking when they were coming out of school and whatever, uh, led them downtown because this was the most urban centric economic expansion since World War II. So if you were going to have a job, you had to have an apartment downtown because that's where the jobs were. Right. So it wasn't that you wanted the apartment, you wanted the job. That's right. So what they were, what they were telling us was when our economic position improves, we eventually intend to buy a house, but we're going to, this job has to grow in income. We have to get our credit in shape. We'll probably get married. Uh, and, and then at that point, we'll look into moving to a place where we can afford and buy a house. So it, no generation is any different from the other, as far as we can tell, uh, in, in terms of the demographics. So then it's a question of how many people there are, how many households they form. And the millennials are the biggest generation we've ever had, even yep. bigger than the boomers. So... But then the boomers play a role, too, because they have something on the order of an 80 percent homeownership rate and they're going to age in place. And so to that, those properties don't come uh, come back into the market until they the boomers start to pass on. In a couple of years, the leading edge of the boomers turns 80. So that life expectancy is uh, shortly after that. So. Over time, you'll see some of that come back. But of course, then the Gen Zs are coming. And however, that's supplemented by immigration. 
that will continue the demand curve on that side. So a lot of it is left uh, in the in the uh, in the field of the builders. And um, when we said in 2014, we off of our survey combined with some demographics, we said actually the problem going forward is going to be supply. And people thought we were crazy because we'd just come off this uh, this crazy massive times. foreclosure yeah. and stuff. And they're like, you guys, you're kidding. You really think that? Well, now everybody's in that camp. But what had happened was we went from building about 1.6 million single family detached houses at the peak in 07 to 400,000. In other words, we destroyed three fourths of the supply chain and then we stayed there for three and a half years before construction started to pick up. All that three and a half years, the millennials were aging and they were moving closer and closer toward the point when they would start uh, driving the demand curve. And that happened in probably late 2015. Uh, and since then, they've really been the driver uh, as they've moved toward peak home buying age, which is still a couple of years from now. Yep. So, but the the builders, by and large, historically had built to the move up buyer, and so when you went into a builder showcase, they were showing you options, like you know, you could have granite countertops or finished basements or you know other attributes that represented the equity you were taking from your first home and, and making your next home nicer. Well, entry-level people need bedrooms, bathrooms, and a, and a garage, and not much more than that because affordability is their biggest challenge. Right. That's not really what the builders were targeted toward. And so it took the builders a little while to learn how to position themselves to meet entry-level demand as opposed to move-up demand, which there was still move-up demand, but there, there was more entry-level demand that they had faced in the past. So... They're getting better at that, but it's still today with the boomers uh, aging in place and when the, with the Gen X folks locked in with those 3% mortgages, it's on the back of the builders to build supply. Uh, and so builders are doing very well um, uh, because demand, uh, as you said, demand is strong, even though mortgage rates have risen to over 6%. A little history here, if you go back to World War II and you track the 30 year fixed rate mortgage rate, about 6% is the average over yep. that the whole time period. So it's not, it's only a shock because we went from 3%, right. which no one should have ever expected, That's right. uh, to back to normal. But it felt like a, a real problem because the shift was so big, but it just got us back to a historical norm. You sound like you're, you sound like me now. I keep talking to everybody and saying these. This is not an abnormal rate. This is the normal right. mortgage industry. It just feels like it because we're so close to those low rates that we had. So let yeah, me. My ask, first rate was ten. Yeah, and then I re refinanced down to eight, and then I refinanced down to six. <laughs> <laughs> well, I started in 1983, and rates were 17 and a half on a mortgage when I was selling them in that day. So you know. The, these there rates don't seem too bad to me. Um, right. Yeah. I'm going to pretend like I read that in the history book and I wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, so, you know, you hear talk about the quote unquote silver tsunami, uh, this thought that, you know, the baby boomers will die off at a point where we'll have a lot of real estate available. Is there any, is there any truth to that? If so, what, what is that going to happen? When do you see that? And, 
envision that happening? Well, uh, actually, uh, I have a, a two or three re- longer-term research projects that, that I've got staff working on. One of them is that question. Okay. Listen, what do the, what do the boomers do with the equity in their home in late life? Uh, because, the, as I mentioned, they have about an 80% home ownership rate, and not all of them have the savings to maintain the lifestyle that they want or to support later life difficulties. And so there is a question of how does the housing uh, equity play out into that? Okay. Um, I don't have a solid answer for that yet. People, a lot of people uh, will talk about reverse mortgages. We've done some uh, focus groups with uh, older households. They're like, you know what? We've paid the house off. This is, we're going to stay here in this house. We don't like reverse mortgages. Yep. Um, because they're they're not efficient and they're not really part of our financial plan. Yeah. So uh, now conditions change and force people to make uh, to make changes. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. And there that number of people is growing very rapidly. Yeah. I've seen. I haven't done the calculation myself, but I've seen estimates of ten thousand people a day um, wow. passing the age of sixty five. Uh, that's a lot of people. Uh, and when you think about 80% home ownership rate in that population, that's a lot of houses uh, as well. So I think that's a kind of an open question, uh, which we're trying to see, is there anything we should be doing as a company in thinking about enabling them to, to continue in that space um, or thinking about transitions, some way to help them liquefy equity if that's a, an issue that they would like to pursue. We're just trying to understand what they want, what they will need, mismatch between there, and is there something we should be thinking about doing uh, to help? Yeah, well, that's really interesting because, you know, reverse mortgages have have really had a pretty difficult time for the last 10, 20 years um, in creating any traction. Uh, I think part of that's just because people don't understand them. I think part of that is because uh, they've seen some cases where they felt like, you know, they, they maybe people lost out because of that. But a lot of that is just because the demographic wasn't there. So for lenders today, that's probably a good additional product to have in your portfolio going forward, because there will be a time, I think, when that's going to become very viable, especially if we see some changes in the way reverse mortgages are set up and they make them a little easier for consumers and a little bit more protection in those things. I think it'd be really great. Um, talk about yeah. talk about the, the the new construction because we're starting to see more building again. I know that I, you know as I travel around, I see it more and more than I did for a while. There was nothing happening in you know two thousand eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, fifteen. We're starting to see it again. How fast do you think we can expect to see housing start to catch up through new construction and through building? Especially because, like you talked about, you know the biggest challenge we've got is getting affordable housing for these uh, Gen Y, Gen uh, Z that we're dealing with right now. That they just can't afford the four hundred and fifty, five hundred, five hundred fifty thousand dollars homes that are so common out there. Right. Yeah. Um, so we are uh, we are seeing a strong, uh, stronger than expected. Let me say that stronger than expected construction. Good. Uh, simply because there is uh, there is a shortage relative to demographics, uh, um, and it depends on whose estimates and what kind of properties they're including. Somewhere between two and four million units of uh, single-family homes and apartments 
uh, are needed to catch up to the, the demographic demand. And that takes a while. Um, so, I, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's ongoing growth. That's the catch up part yep. plus the ongoing growth. So thinking that this is going to happen in the next two or three years is probably really optimistic. Okay. There's, but, but it does mean there will be strength, particularly on the purchase side. And that's, that is one thing that those companies who looked ahead beyond the refi business in the pandemic and said, well, there's stability and strength in the purchase side of business. So I'm going to make sure I'm in the business to help people buy homes to live in them, not refinance their existing home. Yep. Those firms are doing fine. Uh, that That's a solid business and will be for the foreseeable future. Um, so the builder is going to do what they can to get there. One of the things that is happening in some locations is a recognition by local jurisdictions that they need to ease development concerns and zoning situations to allow the construction of affordable housing. Good. There's not, it's, it's a local issue, right? It's, it's not something you can pass a law in Congress and make it happen. Right. It's gotta be jurisdiction by jurisdiction. So you're seeing signs of that recognition um, I wouldn't say it's a, a big thing yet, but it is growing. You, you, you've seen things like the accessory dwelling units discussions and uh, so, uh, some infill uh, permissions uh, being offered, some things like that. That needs to continue uh, in, in order to, to uh, improve supply, especially affordable supply. Uh, my um, sense of where the financing piece is going to be, particularly interest rates. I, I, I don't think you'll see a whole lot of change in credit criteria from where we are today. They're pretty stable. Yep. The, the loans that are out there are pretty good loans. A little bit of an uptick in FHA. Part of that is that when rates were at 3%, people were refinancing, the higher quality borrowers that were already in the FHA portfolio were refinancing out, getting rid of the MI and getting a conventional loan, which on average raised the delinquency rate in the FHA portfolio as those better credits financed out. But that's kind of the only thing that you're seeing on the quality side. The uh, A question is, um, uh, conditioned on the Fed getting control of inflation. So if we assume yep. the Fed gets inflation back to their target, then what would you think rates would be in a normal housing cycle? And what I'm telling people is uh, if the Congressional Budget Office, which makes the official estimate of potential GDP is correct, they're thinking right now uh, real growth of around one and three quarters percent might be normal then that 6% mortgage might be at the high end. And uh, so uh, when, uh, the, when the 6% was the average 30-year fixed rate for a very long time period, the U.S. was growing at about 3% annually, and so or two and three quarters. So if you drop that a full percentage point, you would think that the run rate of real interest rates would be at a lower pace as well. So I'm, what I'm saying is if that logic holds, then you might expect over the, the, the business cycle, mortgage rates to run from four and a half to 6% with maybe a central target of five and a quarter or something like that. Okay. I don't 
I don't know. That's not solid science. Right. So, it, you know, <laughs> none of us um, know. That's right. Right. But I think that's a logical, you can make a logical construct that will get you to that, which is pretty good. And that's within um, what time frame? Uh, I would say over uh, it, the, the typical expansion recession is maybe six years or something like that. So there'll be a little bit of a refi opportunity if, if the uh, deployment of technology does ultimately improve efficiency for lenders that uh, the, uh, and in the market that the, uh, the margin by which borrowers need to see rates falls maybe goes back to something like 50 or 75 basis points. Yep. There'll be some minor refinance waves uh, in opportunities in there. But really, if you're in the mortgage lending business, being in the business to lend to people to buy a house, that's the sustainable long run yep. uh, model. You know, one more question I want to ask you about the builders. Uh, how much is the supply chain issue still a factor in that growth that we're seeing? And the other thing is just the workforce challenges that are out there today. You know, it seems like, mm -hmm. you know, everybody talks about it, that nobody wants to work. You know, now we know that that's not true, that nobody wants to work. But we are seeing uh, an awful lot of challenges in the workplace with people being able to hire employees and maintain them and keep them. And I know the construction mm -hmm. business really struggles with that. How much of a factor do those two play in this growth and the speed of the growth? Um, well, if you watch the surveys of builders, skilled labor is always toward the top of the things that they yep. need. Uh, that goes back to the crisis where we went from building 1.6 million units to 400,000. That meant three quarters of that labor that was in there was unnecessary at that 400,000. And it was there for three years, three and a half years. So that labor went somewhere else yep. and found a home. So it takes time to build skills that general labor is not so hard to find, but skilled labor is what, uh, what they've been saying consistently yep. uh, for, for years. Um, so that, that's a challenge and will continue to be, uh, to be a challenge. And I know there are some places that are turning to building some uh, skilled uh, trades, uh, some of the trades are, are running schools and training programs to try to help uh, bring some of that labor in. Other materials, um, th at the outset of the pandemic, they shot through the roof. Yep. Um, uh, lumber has come, ba come back. It's still sensitive to pickups, in, sudden pickups in demand. And so it, it's probably not as stable as it was for a long period. It, there's volatility. There are still some components which are maybe more complex to produce that where the, they're still uh, higher uh, cost than what they were prior to the pandemic. Yep. But the, the supply issues for the pandemic had uh, uh, emerged from a couple of things. One was when we lost 20 million jobs, the builders are like, who's going to buy a house in that environment? Yep. And so they immediately... Pulled back on their construction plans, and that was exacerbated by the need for them, if they retained the labor, to protect it from a health perspective. So they had to figure out how we're going to do this in a way, if there is going to be demand for houses, how are we going to do it in a way that we protect our labor force's health? Well, that took a while. It was maybe four or five months before you started to see the resumption 
of construction, that four or five months, the millennials were receiving, some of them receiving paychecks, even though they weren't going to work through the Paycheck Protect, Paycheck Protection Program. Yeah. So the demand side kept going and we were already behind the curve on supply and we got another four months behind the curve. So it, those things kind of compiled. Yeah. Uh, like I say, some of the supply things have been uh, have been uh, improved. I wouldn't say solved necessarily, but have been improved. Uh, but they're still uh, costs are still accelerated beyond what they were, and you can see that in the margins of the public builders. They've, they've been doing very well in this time period from a, a profitability perspective because demand has been very strong, um, even though affordability was constrained, those, uh, the uh, financially stronger millennial households were absolutely uh, making the move. Yep. And one of the things that, you know, if interest rates six and a half percent today, some of them are, you hear this phrase, uh, date the rate and marry the house. Yeah. <laughs> I hear it all the time. I don't know. <laughs> I, I did see a cartoon the other day that showed a realtor at a house, you see the door was open and there were some patches on the walls and there's a couple standing there. And she says, well, this is a real fixer-upper. How's your marriage? So the builders, you can look at the public builders' earnings reports and you can see they've been doing very well. Demand is very strong, yep. uh, even though we've seen that rate shock. Yep. Well, you know, I'm wearing a Back to the Future t-shirt because that's been our theme this year, Doug, uh, Mortgage Champions mm -hmm. with our clients all year long is to succeed in this market, you got to go back to the basics to succeed in the future. We're, we're back to a traditional market, 6 to 7% rates. We're, we're fighting yeah. that battle of, you know, the consumer mindset is I'm still looking for three and trying to convince them that's not coming back anytime soon. So here's the deal. You got, you got to determine what can you afford in this kind of environment today, because it is the new norm. There's no question about it. I think the last year and a half has been difficult for everybody because consumers and lenders alike, I think we're both sitting, holding their breath saying, okay, is this going to change and go back to what it was? And, you know, guys like you and I were saying, nope, it's not. It's headed north and it's going to stay north for a while because we, we needed a yeah. correction for all intents and purposes. Didn't really want to see yeah. one quite this dramatic. Uh, but nonetheless, this is a, a more normal marketplace. So, you know, it's, it's always amazed me, Doug. One of the things that I, that I love the most about you is that you're an economist who knows so many things about so many parts of the economy, yet you understand the mortgage side and what lenders are dealing with and how they work because you're so involved and you, you speak at so many conferences in the industry. So if, if I could ask you this last question, um, from your perspective, first off, what do you think lenders need to know the most today about the market? And then what would be your recommendations on what they can do, lenders, loan officers, people in the business, to just do well within this marketplace? What are some of the blind spots that you can help them uh, uncover? Um, well, I, I think they, they need to be realistic to borrowers about where the numbers are going to That's be. Good. Um, I, I think 
you, even if it's tough news, you're better off being seen as an honest right. uh, player, telling them the truth, what they're getting into. Uh, people ask me on the consumer side, is now a good time to buy a house? And my first statement is, if you have a family budget, and I'm that, that's actually what I'm trying to get at, is you should have a family budget. Yep. And then you take that information from that. Then you're sitting across from a lender who knows you're educated on your own financial characteristics. Yep. And there's not, there's not uncertainty about what you're going to be able to qualify. Great advice. Yep. So, so having just a, it, for both the lender and the borrower, it's a much better situation uh, to, to get there. So there's that. Uh, if you're um, investing in technology, I would spend a little time thinking about whether there are implications for your business from the fact that the reason Silicon Valley Bank was taken into bankruptcy on a Thursday in the middle of the day was because $42 billion of deposits flowed out of that bank in six hours. Wow. Traditionally, the FDIC closes, the bank closes on Friday. It's taken over over the weekend. It's restructured and Monday it opens. Mm -hmm. They went on a Thursday afternoon because of that massive outflow that was enabled by technology. So I don't, there's not a direct application to mortgage companies, but you need to think about what's the role of technology, both from the consumer's perspective and from your perspective in terms of economic efficiency. And are there things that you might not have, have considered in your operations where the, that speed issue and mortgage banks has always been a speed right, issue, right? right? That's right. To closing. It's always been, there were a couple of people that left Fannie Mae a couple of years ago, went to a mortgage company and they thought they sort of knew everything uh, uh, that they were going to need. And I said, because I'd worked at MBA, which was a great experience. I loved MBA. Yep. Still do. Uh, I learned so much. I told them, I said, you, you probably haven't heard this at Fannie, but it's a speed business. Right. Uh, two years later, I saw them at an event, and they were like, it's a speed <laughs> business. <laughs> it is. So, so I would give a little thought, uh, a little thought to that. Uh, and then I, as always, focus on making loans to people who are buying houses to live in them and doing it in such a way that when such time as an opportunity comes for them to improve their loan, or buy another house, you're in position because you're a trusted party. I think there's there, trust is always valuable. Amen. So whatever you can do to build trust, uh, I'd be doing that. You know, you just said three of my favorite things there. You talked about budgets. I have never been a fan since it started over two decades ago of using DTIs as a calculation for approving a borrower. We used to do a budget on a borrower back in the 80s when I started. And you literally mm -hmm. weren't making a loan to somebody unless they truly could afford it. We didn't use a, a calculation mm -hmm. of gross income. We went to net income and really looked at what they're doing. And one of the things I advise lenders all the time is have a good budgeting tool that you can have your customers use. So you separate yourself from your competition and you give them something where they can go into that home feeling good about what they're doing. Um, you know, I do, right. I do, I do radio programs all over the country. And that's the first thing I say every time people say, well, what should I do when I get a mortgage? First, do your budget before you do anything. Don't go in close right. eyed to that. And, and I loved when you talked about the technology piece, because the mistake that I keep seeing in the industry with technology is we don't use it for what it's intended for, which is 
uh, creating efficiency in your process and having a good process of understanding, you know, following your customer through the process. What we do instead is we try to use this as a relationship tool. We, we try to use it as the way that we have people apply. And because of that, you don't have trust and loyalty because all you're doing is you're doing everything through a technological mindset. Here, let me send you a link, fill out an application. We'll give you a quote. Okay, well, your quote can be beat by anybody. We already know that. Right. And if you don't, if that borrower doesn't really know who they're working with, trust them and have loyalty to them, there's no reason for them to go with any higher rate than the lowest out there at that point. The only way you can really do well is by using that technology alongside relationship and, and do both right. together. So I love those closing comments. Um, so let me ask you the, the, the last question I asked all my, my uh, guests, and you and I talked about this a couple weeks ago. I love to hear about mentors and who's been mentors in your life. You mentioned one earlier um, from the MBA that you had. Um, Lewis Knight, I believe you said, was one of your uh, mentors. Uh, but I know you've had a, several in your life. Tell me about those and how much you think mentors matter uh, in the business world to people. Um, <laughs> when I was appointed uh, chief economist at MBA, I got a call from Felix Beck. And uh, this will be a, a butcher his voice. But like, Doug, your forecast is all wrong. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is one of the godfathers of the industry. They still have an idiot. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I was terrified. Well, turns out, I don't know why he chose, but he chose to to do that and did it consistently for a long period of time to help me understand how I could help lenders uh, understand how a forecast should play out in their, their planning for the company. So Felix... Uh, he, you know, good Lord, he he's, was involved in a hundred things, but he took the time for this rookie forecaster to, to lean over and, and tell me, look, here's, here's some things to learn. Uh, and one of the great privileges of my life, when he retired from the Chase board, he was uh, uh, offered to, uh, they, they asked him to bring a guest and he invited me to come as his guest. One of the great honors of my career. Um, Andy Woodward uh, is another one. Uh, Andy, the MBA was going through some uh, turmoil. There were some frustrations. He received that. He said, uh, you know, I need you to come down to uh, South Carolina to uh, Will Ann and my place. Spend a weekend with me. I want to talk to you about how, how the whole industry works over the long run to see if I can help you get a little perspective on today's problem versus uh, things that have happened before. I, I don't know why he chose to invest in me, uh, but another great privilege, another person of, of immense respect. Um, so it, it does matter. Uh, it takes two things. One is you have to be open to it as yes. a person, to someone mentoring you. And the second is if you are a person of experience, you also have to be open to finding someone that has potential that can be developed and offer to them the opportunity of your experience uh, and with no expectations of anything. Uh, I've had a couple of chances to pass that on uh, to other people and it's really rewarding uh, to see that happen uh, uh, in, in someone's life that, that, that there's a, another level that they get to uh, 
that it's not, it's rarely financial in yep. nature. At least that's my yep. experience. It is maybe different for some other people, but it's satisfaction. It's the, the pleasure of uh, the relationship, but also the benefits of that relationship and your ability to contribute to other things that you're doing. So I'm, I'm a believer in it. I don't know that it, some people try to structure it. Uh, in my experience, the structure just kind of no, emerged, right. uh, whatever makes sense yeah. emerged. Uh, so I don't I try not to overthink it, but um, we don't, uh, we have a, a development process in my, that's not specifically mentoring in my group, uh, but we have a development process for people across the course of their career, uh, which we focus on specifically uh, to help them go to the next step. And uh, sometimes the next step for them is outside the company, not because we don't want them, but as you know, every company is kind of a pyramid and there's only so far some people can go within that pyramid. But we want them to go out as an advocate for yeah. us, uh, having grown in the time that they were with us. Uh, and that makes it easier for us to recruit. You can go there, work for five or six years and really make progress on your career and then uh, move on to something else. And then they tell someone else, I went there first. That's a good That's group right. to work with. Yeah, becomes a recruiting tool, yeah. too. Great message, not only for individuals to find a wise mentor and be open to them, but for lenders. That's a great message to help people understand, help lenders understand out there. If you build a mentorship program within your organization, if you build a program where people can move up through the ranks, you're going to really have great employees who are very loyal to your company and will stay around for a long time. I've seen that my whole career. I mean, I've, I've worked with over 700 lenders in my career. And the ones that stand out in my mind are the ones who really took that to heart and really built a culture around that where their their whole focus was personal growth and professional growth for their people and all that they did. So I appreciate you saying that. Well, Doug, this has been so much fun and it's no coincidence you're wearing a white shirt because you're just one of the good guys in the business. I, I, I appreciate <laughs> you so much. I, I admire you. I respect you immensely. I'm super honored that you took the time out of your busy schedule to spend with me today uh, on Betting a Thousand. And I want to thank you so much for that opportunity. Thanks for being with us. And uh, thanks for all the great advice. And we'll look forward to seeing you guys on the next Betting a Thousand. Thanks, guys. <laughs>